breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Yes, it's another week and I could not wait to come back and talk to you all this week about the goings-on, some of the issues that are pertinent to Islamic reform, to counter-jihadism, to oh, all the other issues of free speech. We have a lot to talk about. And as we enter the last few days of Ramadan, for those that are Muslim, I wish you a blessed Ramadan. May your fast have been what you have wanted, what you expected. May your prayers be heard. And as we come to the holiday of the feast, the first day of the 10th month of the lunar calendar, may your families rejoice in the holiday. May you have invested and reserved all of the necessary prayers and supplications for the following 11 months until next Ramadan. And may we all rise up out of this malaise that has been the pandemic and return to a productivity and the vibrancy of society that is unparalleled. But we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of fixing to do, as they say. There's been repair needed to bridge the chasm in America. Repair needed to address the issues of human rights, of equality, of bigotry, misogyny, hate, and otherwise interpretations of Islam that are still rooted in the 11th, 12th, 13th century that have so much reform necessary. What I want to talk to you about this week, there was a a debate that uh, Andrew Harrod brought to my attention through his work uh, and uh, article in The Spectator about blasphemy that included a few of the known players in the American Muslim community, uh, leadership, if you will, the Islamists. And I I, I think, you know, Andrew points out uh, a lot of... uh, points from his perspective, but I do think it's worth from a reformer's perspective to weigh in on this debate about blasphemy laws in Islam in the in the modern era. And then we're going to talk about Iran, the Iranian regime, and its spies, its agents, its apologists that exist in the American university system after the Syrian war, the Syrian civil war started in 2011, there was all of a sudden a dissembly, if you will, of many of the previous agents. They still exist, though. They stayed in power. They stayed in existence. And, you know, some of the apologists like John Landis continues to have a perch at the University of Oklahoma. But the bottom line is as much of their work has been exposed. The Iranian professor... Uh, the Iranian apologists for the Khomeinists and the Islamic Revolution continue stronger than ever, and we'll talk about that. So first, as Andrew Harrod pointed out, there's this revealing debate that happened with an organization called Critical Connections. It includes some graduates that matriculated from the Muslim Public Affairs Council, a Islamist organization that... It's probably one of the most so-called mainstream organizations that was attached at the hip to the Obama administration and the Obama White House from 2008 to 2016. Sarah Al-Tantawi 
is one of the leaders of this critical connections. She left MPAC a long time ago and now apparently is a professor of modern Islam at Fordham University and also is a contributor to the hosting of this program, Critical Connections, a web, a, a, a webinar moderator that is also uh, joined with um, Melika Samdani. Now, where are they categorized? Can they be pigeonholed clearly in their positions on anti-Semitism, their positions on Ilhan Omar, their um, lack of criticism of the Muslim Brotherhood, their lack of of dissembly of the Islamic State concept. I would have a hard time saying they're not Islamists. And when it comes to Israel, they are abhorrently anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. But as we review a lot of the the varying opinions, uh, I think some of the internecine battles between neo-Islamists and historical Islamists, the populist Islamist versus the neo-Salafist and the Salafist. I know these words all don't mean much to you, many of you, but at the end of the day, there is an antagonism going on and the way that that battle, the way that that debate is articulated and dissected will be important. So whether you're talking about, you know, Salafism is sort of orthodoxy, if you will. Salafi jihadism is the orthodox that believe in jihad, which is the primary progenitor of most radical movements on the planet. Political Islam or Islamism is the belief in the Islamic State concept and that the law should be Sharia-driven, the identity of Islamic citizens. Muslim citizens should be as national, a, a national adherence to Sharia and that the Quran is the source, not a only a source of law. So political Islam in many ways is more overarching than Salafi jihadism, which is more of a faith type adherence, but there's a ton of overlap between those. Um, many Islamists are Salafis, many Salafis are Islamists, but not all. For example, the Saudi version of Salafism claims to be against political Islam but it is for a corporate type of Islamism. It's certainly not modern. It's certainly not Western and and rooted in enlightenment and post-enlightenment thought of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But that's, that's a, a, a topic for another day. Today, Critical Connections, this organization that apparently has been around since 2013, decided to have a debate with a couple well-known ideologues on Islam's blasphemy restrictions. They invited Yasser Qadi, an individual that I've discussed on this program many times, who the New York Times hailed as a reformer, and many of us know that he is no more a reformer than some of the former extremists who claim to have abandoned violence but yet are still Islamists. Yasser Qadi is an apologist for everything that is radical Islam other than the violence and even the violence itself he apologizes for and claims that there's excuses and blames the West repeatedly. Other than the New York Times whitewashing, most people have his ticket and know what he stands for, which is Holocaust denial and, and uh, uh, Islamist misogyny, Islamist anti-Semitism. 
anti-Zionism, anti-Israel. He is the Dean of Academic Affairs at the Islamic Seminary of America. And he was also joined by Muqtadar Khan. Khan, also another MPAC graduate, famously uh, asked for submissions to his magazine that his journal, so-called academic journal at MPAC on political Islam, and he had his intern tell me after I submitted a 3,000-word sourced essay on political Islam and why we need to reform, he rejected it, flat-out rejected it without request for edits or anything, just did not want to publish it. So shows you what free speech means to Muqtadar Khan. But in this debate, he was whatever the way you want to interpret it, the more moderate of the two. And let's wade through some of this. Now, I, I think the position here, uh, and then Sarah El-Tantawi was one of the moderators, if you will, that brought some reason to the conversation between these two so-called academic scholars of Islam in America, Qadi and Muqtadar Khan, Yasser Qadi and Muqtadar Khan. But I think what can be learned from the details of this debate is how to approach Islamists when it comes to free speech and how not to approach it. And this topic is so important to America because right now we're dealing with our own convulsions about free speech from the suppression of a former president's social media platforms, presence on social media to a discussion of what type of free speech where you have Twitter that allows Khamenei to pray for the end of Israel to call for the destruction of a whole race of people that is the Jewish people to call for the genocide and denial and the hate of America and the implicit targeting of American troops even though he may not directly say it it's obviously he's at war and his Twitter handle remains unabated unobstructed and President Trump's vanishes and that's not just Khomeini there are other tyrants other bigots as I've talked about here Louis Farrakhan with the Nation of Islam is another bigot that should not have a million followers and should be deplatformed if they re, if we were to use Twitter's own rules and it's amazing how much they talk out of both sides of their mouth. The Islamists, the Salafists, will on the one hand call for free speech and on the other hand condemn Western countries that allow it. Qadi, on the one hand, talked about the uh, restrictions of speech in Muslim society and the context of it in the 7th century and on, and that uh, he uh, called for a greater diversity of human cultures, etc., but then he condemns, as Andy Herod notes, condemns the French defenses of speech, criticizing Islam following the October 16, 2020 beheading in Paris of Samuel Paty by an ISIS operative because he wanted to teach his kids, his students, about what happened to Charlie Hebdo in 2015. And listen to this word salad that... Qadi follows with. He says, 
a radical theological revisionism of an Islamic utopic past. Revisionism, so therefore it is utopic, Qadi is saying. I'm not sympathetic, he said, to grandiose claims of some modern reformers to have miraculously discovered the true intent and the exclusively correct interpretation of the sacred law after 14 centuries of misinformation and misinterpretation. So you notice he's, he's basically implying that those of us that have more modern interpretations of Islam are simply parroting Western ideas and are simply trying to be God. But yet, so is he. This is not about being God. This is about human interpretation and what's right and what's righteous. And then he said, within the enclaves of Western academia, the correct interpretations of the ancient Arabic texts just so happen to coincide with notions espoused by Voltaire, Locke, and John Stuart Mill. Oh, so because they aren't Muslims, we can never use their ideas. Their ideas are therefore are therefore defunct, are forbidden, haram, as they say in the Salafist language, forbidden not kosher and he doesn't give a reason where's the discussion of why free speech should be it's this is all exegetical which is fine exegetical descriptions and discussions are important to ground your conversation but at the bottom line the first the first evidence should be about the truism about the evidentiary process which shows by any type of derivation that free speech is the best system free speech unprohibited other than calls for violence is the best system that allows one to get close to god and that allows the removal of intermediaries between an individual and god and allows the best form of human inquiry and interactions and understanding and that was missing from this conversation that's available on the uh, Critical Connections website where you have El Tantawi debating or moderating Yasser Qadi and Muqtadar Khan. Khan said in the primary sources of Islam, the Quran and the Hadith, there is no way you can conclude that somebody who commits blasphemy should be killed. He cited profound disagreements and diversity as Herod summarizes. And it goes on to have a debate about ijma. Ijma is sort of the consensus of scholars. And Khan said, well, which scholars? How do you know which consensus you're talking about and why does then other opinions? This is something us reformers say all the time. So plaudits to him for bringing that up. But still, Khan himself is an elitist that he claims to be against the elitist and the elitism in American Islam and Western Islam, that there can't be an elitism. And yet, the way he ran MPAC's journal was elitist, at least in my experience. And at the end of the day, the only way to separate out out of the elitism of so-called Islamic scholars is to have a rooted conversation in the provability, in the proof that unprohibited American form of free speech principle, that is not today's form, we're seeming to smother it by the wokeists, is the best system and also can then be proven to be Islamically permitted. 
and, if anything, a mandate with the right reform. And they said that it's not translating to the streets. Why isn't it? Their, their enlightened ideas are not translating. And that, uh, you know, Qadi noted the sobering facts of the 2011 assassination of the Pakistani Punjab governor, Tasir, whose murderer achieved celebrity status by killing a man who questioned Pakistan's blasphemy law. But he wants tangible change from reformers who work within the system. Thus, a slap to those of us that want to upend the system because the system will not change. The Saudi system, they talk about the 2030 plan like they did the 1980 and the 1990 plan. They keep moving it on. They want to stay in power. And Altan Tawi made a good point later about the fact that there's a battle between the Islamists who want to take over and the dictators that want to take over, the secular dictators and both are, are, are stuck in this death match that ultimately the people have been lost in the middle. But again, okay, they said enough is enough. Right, they condemned the Peyti murder in Paris. Yes, they condemned killing or even torture in the name of free speech. And yet, Sarah Al-Tantawi claimed that she didn't want to be an irrelevant progressive, which would explain some of her politics, by the way, and her defense of Ilhan Omar and other radical Islamists because of the political, the politics of it, if you will. But when it comes to the reality, the only way to, to defend, to believe in free speech among these academic arguments that this Fordham professor wanted to have and I think to her credit did have in this conversation but missed really the entire boat of the direction which is in Islam is it permit what is permissible is it something related to literalism and thus exegetical reason or is it simply reason based on the God-given logic that we have in our mind how free, how open is the religion? I would argue that in a religion in which clergy are prohibited, that imams are simply teachers, there is no intermediary between a, a man, a woman, or God, and God, that ultimately it is reason that dictates how we contextualize and how we interpret various words and passages in the Quran. It is our reason to be human being that God gave us free will to determine to determine what what that uh, uh, interpretation is. So therefore, when it comes to blasphemy laws, it's not just about condemning the punishments. It's about condemning the Islamic nature of it. It's about believing in the truth that every individual has a right to speak out as much as they want, as offensive as it is, against God, God forbid, against religion against scripture how else can we expect human beings to engage and believe in a scripture why would we believe that scripture that god and his scripture is something to defend if it needs to be defended through the suppression of free speech what kind of religion is that that you want people to come to so-called willingly and then you prohibit their condemnation and their public expressions against 
every word, every passage, every comma, every part of the history, if you want. That should be free speech, which is the freedom to dissect, to target the ideas, the history, the identity that is our faith, be it Islam or any other faith. Because then when they are convinced that you are humble, you are nonviolent, and you believe in the compassion and the moral character that is the values of your religion, then ultimately you may then win some hearts and minds. So blasphemy is something that should be condemned 100% without equivocation. You can't say, well, we want to protect Islam, but we'll also prohibit blasphemy against Christianity, against Jesus, against Abraham, against Judaism, Moses, the entire tradition, because we want to protect religion from the gutter of human interactions. Nonsense. That's not religion. That becomes totalitarianism, autocracy, dictatorship. And people will find other methods to communicate, either underground or through other channels, because human nature wants to be open and free to accept that which liberates their mind. So that is the proof positive that if you believe in Islam, not only are the punishments abhorrent for any restriction on free speech, but it is it stands to reason that the moral character of a faith must be guided by its ability to defend any and all criticisms of it. Muhammad, the lack of pictures of him, uh, you could argue whether that needs to, to, that type of expression should be prohibited. It certainly should not. And you can argue that Islamic history did not, that that's a more modern, draconian interpretation. And yes, you, you can say that as a Muslim, you might discourage it because of the deification that can happen with prophets and messengers and otherwise. And you want to avoid that. But prohibiting it, making it illegal, that's not human. And that's not human rights, and it's not the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, the first freedom in America is religious freedom, religious liberty. The First Amendment of our Bill of Rights is about free speech. And yes, there are limitations. It's And by the way, this constant refrain from President Biden, you can't shout fire in a theater, uh, you, you probably could. That's not what it's about. If you read a lot of good pieces from the Federalist this past few months about free speech. And yes, the Brandenburg versus Ohio decision about inciting imminent direct violence, I think is the best interpretation that exists about free speech. And yes, there are limitations, civil limitations about slander and libel that might limit free speech. So not only can you can you not call for violence and a mob against another individual, but you cannot spread falsehoods. Now, that speech would not be limited initially, but you would have to pay a punishment for that in court as so many publications have paid in America and in the West for slander, for libel, that they have done against individuals. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time before I leave you this week talking about espionage, spying, apologia, apologia, agents, uh, 
And remember, they exist. And we're worried currently the most probably about China, Russia. But we should continue to be worried about Iran and Islamist agents that exist within our system, within our establishment. And as A.J. Kachetta opined in the Hill this week, there are a litany of spies that Iran has riddled throughout academia and universities. This week, Justice Department recently invite, indicted Professor Kaveh Afrasiabi, charging that for decades his persona as a neutral, mind ma- mild-mannered scholar was a cover, and that in reality he was an agent of the Islamic Republic of Iran. This seasoned academic worked at Boston, Harvard, and UC Berkeley, was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to promote Iranian interest in the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, and to appear on television because it appears that he's been caught. And it's just amazing. You know, I wrote against a couple of professors as the revolution came out that were pro-Assad and mentioned that these were likely agents of Assad. They denied it. They certainly continue to defend Assad and claim that the revolution was all about terrorism. Yes, ISIS obviously came years later in 2013 as the as the revolution initially was radicalized by Qatar, Turkey, etc., but not to go down that rabbit hole, but to say that Assad's agents stood up and played for him here in America. Khomeini's agents, Khomeini's agents exist and continue to play. And the Justice Department, to their credit, indicted Afrasiabi. Is he the only one? Not really. The sad truth, as he points out in this piece, is that Iran doesn't really need agents to pose as neutral experts because American academics long have done Iran's public messaging free of charge. Afrasiabi alleged handlers at the Iran's UN mission defended him by invoking his credentials, insisting that he was he was a well-known academic and well-respected professor and an expert on international relations. While the two aren't mutually exclusive, many professors have been agents in their purchase. It's an interesting an example over in France, Michael Foucault's most famous, uh, France's most famous Academic on Iran helped to usher in the revolution by downplaying the ruthlessness of Ayatollah Khomeini's followers and exaggerating their popularity in September 1978. And you remember how essential Khomeini's perch in France was for him to send tapes into Iran and foment the revolution, which he then went to Iran to lead a year later. Foucault wrote enthusiastically that the reactivation of Islam the reactivation of Islam would be peaceful and women would be free under the new system, claiming that he met in Tehran and throughout Iran the collective will of a people. He insisted that Khomeini is not a politician, but rather the focal point of a collective will. Oh, how beautiful. Well, Foucault, as you know, proved to be a horse's you-know-what. As almost every immigrant that I spoke to from Iran, especially the ones that left within that first year, had unbelievable remorse about the propaganda and how 
fascistic the revolution ended up being that within three or four months it proved to be islamic theocracy islamic radicalism and the worst of the worst when it came to religious leadership now how they didn't see that uh, i think the a book still needs to be written on that how they missed it how they missed what the ideologies of these clerics anyone who knows those clerics internally knows their fatwas their rulings were misogynistic, bigoted, anti-Semitic, anti-Western. There's no way there was a mistaking for those who were in the know, who read, who had known what's going on. Let alone now, throughout the university systems of uh, the agents that we see. Well, they, as you recall, Khomeini took hostages for 444 days. But the academics continued to try to suppress the reality of what that revolution was. Obama's presidency brought Iran unprecedented opportunities to expand its influence because he wanted to give them more money, open up their system, bring corporations from Europe into and the West into Tehran to feed the beast that is Islamism, Shia Islamism, Khamenist Islamism. But they didn't care. The the uh, Valerie Jarrett, Barack Obama plan, along with uh, all the other useless policy hacks like Ben Rhodes that made this happen, continued to use the Islamists that were Iranian agents throughout universities and organizations like Treaty Parsi, who now is running the horrifically biased Quincy Institute, funded by Soros and Koch. Why? Because it wants to pull America out of influence. For Koch, that is. But the reality is that becomes an implicit, implicit agency working for Khomeini's interests, the Khomeini interests. Columbia University appears to have many professors, according to this piece, and, and, and obviously so, devoted to promoting Iran. Seven of the 73 academic signatures on a letter during the Obama administration urging Congress to pass the JCPOA agreement for a nuclear deal belong to Columbia. One of them, Robert Jervis, is the Adley Stevenson Professor of International Politics in the Department of Political Science. He even found it when Iran was going to use the coronavirus pandemic to get sanctions removed. Jervis endorsed the idea in an interview with the Iranian labor news agency that later became a headline in the Tehran Times. Columbia University professor urges removal of Iran sanctions because of the coronavirus. At Rutgers, Hussein Amir Ahmadi makes claims that would make Iran's supreme leader proud. Founder of the American Iranian Council, former director of Rutgers Center for Middle Eastern Studies and currently professor, said Iran has not been involved with any terrorist organization, neither Hezbollah nor Hamas are terrorist organizations. Oh my God. This is a professor. Well connected to Iran. George Washington University professor Hussein Askari, professor of international business and international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs, does basically 
regime public affairs. In the Tehran Times, he said Iran should never negotiate its right to ballistic missiles, should answer U.S. criticisms of Iranian human rights abuses with charges of American racism, and should only stop enriching uranium if the U.S. ends sanctions and meets Iran's demands for compensation stemming from Iran economic pains inflicted by President Trump's maximum pressure campaign. So just to think about it, not only are these professors echoing Tehran's sentiment, but they do untold damage to empowering Tehran, where they see these professors that they might have on the, on the dole, whatever it might be, but they see them perched here inflating their influence and saying, well, we don't have to listen to anything Washington says because we have the academics, the ulama, the scholars in Arabic on our side. Princeton, another university, Sayyid Hussein Musavian, an expert at the Program on Science and Global Security on Iran, consistently urges American conciliation with Iran, arguing against sanctions. He wrote in Al Jazeera that he wanted Tehran to wait out the Trump administration and work with the Europeans on a way to circumvent U.S. sanctions. That sounds like he's skirting on the law right there. 2020, he advised Biden to rejoin the JCPOA if he got elected and most outrageously to remove the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, from the state's department's terrorist list. How could they? I mean, for talk about propaganda, that takes the cake, doesn't it? William Beeman, American emeritus professor of anthropology at the University of Minnesota, told the Tehran Times interview that Iran's ballistic missile program is completely legal, according to Kashera and the Hill. And in 2012, Columbia's Jervis wrote, the U.S. should resign itself to Iran's development of nuclear weapons. And he was one-upped, according to Kashera, by Kenneth Waltz, a professor of political science at the University of Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, who wrote that Iran's development of nuclear weapons shouldn't be merely tolerated, but actually encouraged because it would de- it would stabilize the Middle East. And Dr. Pipes from the Middle East Forum called it, appropriately, the single most preposterous analysis by an allegedly serious strategist on the Iranian quest for a nuclear weapon. All these agents... We know, those of us who've suffered under the opinions that uh, have filled the bandwidth from Assad's handlers, there was a time before the Civil War, 2011, since Assad took power in 1970, one out of nine American Syrians were somehow linked as information operatives, part of the Mukhabarat, the Syrian intelligence information services that were reporting on brothers and uncles and cousins here in the United States, expatriates all over the world were reported on into the Syrian government. Syria is now a client state of Iran. Iran has learned very well in the Middle East, no different than Saddam Hussein in Iraq, utilized Iraqi expatriates, Egyptian expatriates were used, Lebanese expatriates for Hezbollah aid, on and on. It's standard operating procedure for these regimes to engage apologists both from the Iranian diaspora and also from simply those who do so for money, 
for the left's penchant to work with the Islamists. Code Pink loves Tehran and thinks that they're mislabeled. And I've talked about that on this program before. Well, a lot to learn here, folks. Keep a keen eye on professors that claim to know what they're doing and know what they believe about Iran. If they're not standing for principles, if they're not objective about what America's goals and aspirations are for the advancement of human rights and the Universal Declaration of of, uh, Human Rights, then take another look. Look at their funding. See what they may be getting in return, maybe from the left, maybe from the Islamists and all the other haters of America. As we talked about last week, the unifying element here is hate of America and hate of the founding of this country and our Constitution. So, to bring it all full circle, we talked at the beginning of the program, for most of this program, about free speech, blasphemy laws, and how much of a a frontline issue that is rationally and against political Islam and every form of orthodoxy that exists that will not modernize and reform within the Muslim communities. You bring that free speech issue into how false information, fake news, uh, uh, fabricated information from Iran penetrates into our academics, our academia. You start to see how important these two issues are and how they feed on one another where the left's woke Culture suppresses, makes people auto-suppress their speech because they are perceived as haters, as bigots, etc. When in fact they're just suppressing free speech. The anti-American narrative is about suppressing free speech. The professors that augment the speech of Tehran Times, of Press TV, are anti-American and they don't care about free speech. It all comes full circle, doesn't it? Well, a lot more to talk about, but it's always been great sharing with you a few thoughts about the latest in the world of the battle against Islamism and political Islam and for America's principles. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R and at Reform This Radio and also at takebackislam.com your faithful American Muslim patriot we'll see you next week have a wonderful holiday on the end of Ramadan God bless you and God bless America Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network